Welcome to the Victorian Parent Council VPC Parent Podcast Series. VPC is a registered charity organisation dedicated to everyone who support parents in educating their children. I'm Jackie Vanderbilt, your host today. So welcome, Steve. It's lovely to have you with us. Hello, Jackie. Nice to talk to you and to all the people that are listening to this podcast. Steve, I think it's always a good way to start off these conversations by having our guests introduce themselves in their own words. So over to you. Well, hello, I'm Steve and I was a psychologist for about 35 years. And I'm also a dad and a granddad and a husband um, and combine all of those sorts of things. And I've written a few books that are quite well known around the world. Steve, how did you get into the work specifically around families, parenting, and, and particularly, you've written a lot about raising boys and raising girls in particular, but how did you get into that sort of area? Sure. Well, when I first chose a career, I decided I would study physics. It, it seemed like a, a good subject if you couldn't relate to human beings. And so I went off to do physics at university. Um, but when I got there, it was not as much excitement as I thought. I think I'd mistaken having a good teacher for liking the subject. And so my interest in physics took a bit of a dive and I, I dropped out of university, and I, but I got a, offered a job working in a high school. And this high school had a lot of kids who couldn't read very well. And I was asked to look after the remedial program with these um, uh, sort of pretty tough teenagers who didn't didn't really know how to write or write their own name. And doing that work, I realized that I really got on well with rough kids. And I liked them. And I especially liked being able to be of some use. I think when we're young, we really want to feel that we're making a contribution of some kind. And so, so I thought, wait a minute, perhaps I am wanting to work with people and not just work with you know, machines and, and atoms and electrons and things like that. So I went back and I studied psychology and I really loved it. And when I came out, I really loved the work as well. And so that's how it came about. And um, yes, there's much more to that story, of course, but, but that was, that was the, um, the sort of accidental way that I discovered that I wanted to, to work as, as a psychologist. Dave, over that time, have, have children changed, parents changed? Yes, I... I think there's been a, a, an enormous change of the the way that people see what parenthood is, what parenting is. Um, now, children haven't changed. Children are exactly as they were since the Stone Age. We, we, I always say to people, you know, we're, we're raising Stone Age children in the madness of the modern world. Um, but the good news is that... Um, We've come out of a kind of a nightmare century. If you look back on the 20th century, and probably the one before that as well, um, there were wars and there were recessions. There was terrible poverty. Industrialization kind of knocked the family unit around pretty badly. And so just surviving was the focus. And, and parents got by by being very negative and often violent to their children, telling their kids how evil they were, how bad they were. And, and as in the course of my working life, I, I started off seeing that in, in, in my work in Launceston. Um, parents who were, loved their kids, but they were caught in very negative patterns. And so our goals were very simple in the early days, is to help people to stop belting their kids 
and stop telling them how awful they were and be more loving and be more positive. Um, and luckily that's changed. And Jackie, I'm sure you're not as old as I am by any means, but you, you've seen the same change that people have got nicer to children. You're very kind, Steve. I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just assume everyone's a lot younger than I am. <laughs> sometimes if people say that to me but I do think though that um, certainly the stoicism that was uh, I think we I think we inherited that culturally we inherited that from the UK but I, mm. that, that stoicism was seen as a virtu as virtuous and it still is to a certain certain degree I think now we might call it grit or resilience but um, but even that sort of that meaning has morphed a little bit more but I think that that stoicism uh, was seen to be the sort of thing that parents really did need to pass on to their children and and, that, yes. and that's changed a bit too i think that's right because i think you would you would build a sort of a, a hierarchy if you were to look at a family and how it was going you you would start off with the very basic are, are people safe do they feel safe um that they're not going to get belted or hurt or sexually mistreated those are the that's the foundation that people feel that they're going to be protected and, and, and taken care of and not harmed and that's so that's the first one um, and many of our families a century ago didn't have that and, and, and people listening will have not had that in their childhoods so we try to give that to our children and then the second one is to do with um, affection and warmth and feeling that um, if you're crying, someone will give you a cuddle. And if you're lonely, someone will sit down and, and be kind to you. Um, and that our language is positive. We, we, t we tell kids that they're kind and we tell them that they're smart and that they're um, clever and, and, and creative and fun and, and so that they get a, a self sense of themselves, which is that they're worthwhile human beings. So that's the sort of second layer. Um, and we began to focus on that. My first book, The Secret of Happy Children, got that out there as a message that it's he, kids won't become sort of demons if we tell them that they're all right you know and that they're nice um in fact that they're much more likely to be good people so that second layer came in and then today the focus is very much if you look at parenting books now and some of the really great ones that are around they've gone to another layer and what that is is what's called emotional intelligence and it's saying that we will have anger and we will have anxiety and fear in our world and life has a lot of sadness in it and we can't paper over that we can't change that but we can learn to accept feelings and to find ways to deal with them um, that don't um, make everything go haywire and so so helping kids with their feelings to, to, to you know so that a little boy learns to to say when he's upset rather than just smack his friend in the mouth and um and that a dad um when, when he's worried about his kids he'll say look i was scared where you were instead of just um yelling at them and being horrible to them he can talk from the heart and so if we bring that emotional intelligence into families i think that's the current focus if you look at all the books and i think it's a really good thing um because we're needing um, people that have got people skills and are able to cooperate and get along um, so that we can build a world that's that's free of violence and where where our marriages go well and because we, for instance you know 
going very broad here, we still have a 45% divorce rate, Jackie. And so, so we haven't got that emotional intelligence working properly yet. So maybe that's the next threshold. But that's the big picture of, you know, that's looking back from the 1960s to now. That's, I think, the main things that have moved. Dave, I'm interested to, to talk specifically about the role of fathers and the change in fatherhood, uh, because it's certainly, you know, I, I grew up with very affectionate parents and a very involved and affectionate dad. Um, but I do, I see in my own husband, you know, uh, a very different parenting style, which is a lot more involved even more than my dad or even his father was, you know. So I think that there's, there's certainly been a shift in the current uh, crop of parents in the way in which they are relating to their children. Is that something that you've seen too? Yes. In fact, that's probably, um, if I could sum up my life to a single goal, um, I, I, I have many, many goals, but the, the single strongest one was I wanted to put more good men into the lives of children because I saw that girls needed to, to be around dads and other men who treated them with respect and kindness and boys needed to see respect and kindness in the men around so they could become that. And so in the most simple terms, uh, my first goal was that men were just around kids more of the time. Um, because the, the ideal of a dad in the 20th century was a kind of walking wallet. Um, he was a good dad for what he didn't do. He didn't hit and he didn't drink and he didn't gamble. But there wasn't a very positive idea. Now, you, you and I were both lucky, and we have this in common, that we had affectionate dads. But that actually was, was not the rule. Um, the, the 20th century typical dad was actually quite cold and quite disapproving. Um, and, and so people have done studies and the, just in the simple amount of time, young dads today, and this will be the dads listening to this podcast, dads in their late 20s, early 30s, spend three times as much time with their children than the generation before. We've had a 300% rise in simply hanging out with kids you know, talking to them, kicking a ball in the backyard, um, walking the dog with, with your daughter. And so that's a revolutionary change. Um, if you drive down the street, you know, my books are in 32 countries and in almost all those countries now, if you drive down the street, you'll see dads pushing strollers and pushing prams or uh, playing with their kids at the playground. And that didn't used to happen. And so it's, it's one of the most positive things um, the, the average kid now, I think, feels that their dad loves them, he's fun, um, he, he's um, a safe person, that they feel comfortable in his presence, and, and that's a wonderful thing. And so I think we can feel proud that, that, that we've changed that. In, in one generation, we've, we've redefined fatherhood, and I think we'll see the benefits in years to come. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with you, and I think we we still need to see more, obviously, uh, because I'm you know, acutely aware that sometimes the media portrays dads as being, you know, not you know, perhaps not as ideally as we would like, or, or perhaps even not portraying them as in, in the reality that a lot of people are experiencing fatherhood now. Yes, yes, I, many of us are getting are very angry with the media for portraying dads as, as being dills and, and, and hopeless, um, and we would like to change that. But I think there's another cross-current 
that you made me think of there, Jackie, and what that is, is that in some ways, things have got worse. Um, parents have got better, but the world has got worse. And, and the way it's got worse is that it's robbing our time. And I think that parents today, I'm, I'm sure people listening can identify with this, they feel very, very busy. Um, the, the way our economy works has not been to make people more prosperous or to have more time. They feel very stressed for the price of housing and people feel they've got to have two jobs whether they want to or not and, and people working longer hours. And so even though young parents want to be around their children, um, the, the kind of governments that we've had and the kind of economy have, have robbed us of that freedom. It's almost like the right to parent has been taken away from us. And so one of the things that I say in my talks and that you can tell people really know what I'm talking about is, is that hurry is the enemy of love. And that, that love is a thing that is mostly about slowing down. And when you, f you feel cared about and you feel listened to, when someone just sits there and looks at you and listens to you, and um, hangs out with you. And most of the good things in family life come when you're just hanging out. And the problem is that people don't have time to hang out much now. And uh, I think we've also got sucked into this thing that you must have after-school activities, you must be learning, and you must be always involved in loads and loads of things. And if you're not, you're on a screen somewhere paying attention to that. And so, so our, our sort of loving spaces are being stolen by a, a way of life which has kind of crept in. Nobody really chose it, um, but because we're a bit of a herd animal, we've gone along with it, um, but sometimes don't have much choice if we, if we want to pay the bills. Uh, you know, we, we've got to work long hours, and so, so it's a family unfriendly culture, and if you're someone listening to this, what I say to you is don't, don't feel bad about yourself. Feel angry at the way the world is. Um, and how do we change that? How do we get away from that, that, that sort of way of life? Because it's very bad for our children's um, stress levels. And this is showing up in, you know, kids' mental health is not improving. It's, it's going in a, a dive. Um, so there's still, you know, there's still dragons to be fought in the, in, in the parenthood of the future. Is, is this all making sense, Jackie, or am I rambling on? No, and in fact, you've just got launched into the next area that I was going to ask you about, which is biggest challenges that are facing people now, and and you know, and the hurry, you know, is the enemy of love, and you know, if our families are substantially built on love, then you know yeah. we are really robbing ourselves by buying into the hurry, aren't we? That's right, and I think you see what happens if you think in a practical sense. You pick your kids up from school, or they come into the house from school, or or husband or wife come home from work at the end of the day and we're carrying a kind of a jangle of stress from the, the day that we've had and the members of the family are all in different spaces their their levels of agitation or or fatigue are all over the show and in order to get along um, we have to somehow start to get on the same wavelength now one of the things that Sharon and I wrote in the uh, a book we wrote on marriage called The Making of Love that we wrote so long ago. can't believe it, really. And, and it was this idea that when husband and wife come back into the house, that they should always 
sit down, have something to drink and have something to eat. Just, you know, cheese or olives or a snack or, or biscuits or something. But sit down and kind of spend five, ten minutes just getting reconnected. Um, that they don't plow on with the cooking or plow on with the, you know, supervising homework or, you know, going to do something in the home office. But it, it, human beings have to kind of have a synchronizing time. And if you do that, then the rest of the evening goes well because you're synchronized. But if you don't do it, then you'll, nothing will go well that whole night and you'll end up in bed on opposite side of the bed and cranky as, as all hell. And it's the same with kids. Um, they need to sort of tune out and settle down and, and calm from the day. And sometimes that's be, but they do that by talking to us about their day. Sometimes it's just they go and watch some mindless television with a big cup of Milo or whatever it is. But um, it's very important to allow ourselves a, a settling time where we put our family back together again um, so that it can function and, and be a happy space. Um, because home is supposed to be a haven. Um, and, and so I always invite people to look at the mood in your home and, and is it um, playful and is it um, mucking about and is it, you know, lying on the couch together eating popcorn or is it always rush, 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 next thing, next thing? Because some people raise their kids, but some people just manage their kids. And, and it's a horrible feeling, uh, especially for a teenager, to feel like you just you know, being being managed rather than loved or listened to. It's, but it's also physically exhausting for parents. I mean, you know, I remember, I mean, mine are, mine are older, my children are older now, but, you know, the times where they were, we did, we did limit the number of activities that they would be involved in. I, we always thought sport was pretty important, so we, we made sure that that was always on the agenda. But even when we had quite limited number of activities, I've found that whole, you know, trekking around after school, even for one or two afternoons a week was after yeah. work was done. It was such a such an exhausting thing. And I can't even imagine having more activities or more children doing more activities. It was it was just too much as it was. That's right. And and I think that state of overload, there's a very good book called Simplicity Parenting and I've been, been busily spreading the messages in that book that, that says um, everything we do needs a chill out time and so if you do an activity you need um, a time to integrate that activity and if you've had an experience you need a day off to just to kind of think over that experience and, um, and I once remember when we were driving along in the car my, my little boy was only, only about three at the most perhaps even two um, and he said the most astonishing and horrifying thing. He said, why did they kill that baby? And, and we were so shocked that he said that, that we literally pulled off the, on the side of the road and he was in his toddler seat in the back of the car and we said, you know, what baby, what do you mean? And it t turned out he'd seen something on the news the day before um, about a, a child that had been killed and, and we didn't know that he'd heard that. Um, and today we would never have television on around toddlers. But, um, but what my point, Jackie, is that he'd, he'd been thinking about that for 24 hours. Um, and then in a quiet moment in the car, it came out, you know, he wanted to, to talk about it. 
So we t don't realize how much kids take in, how much it troubles them. And whatever age your children are, they'll have things troubling them. And so, you know, when you go and hang out in their bedroom at the end of the day or when you're driving in the car um, or you're just sitting on the couch together, you know, just being open to, you know, well, how are you going? You know, what's on your mind? There'll usually be something they'd really like to unload. Um, and it'll be something you really need to know about. You know, something's going on with their friends, which which you really might want to pay some attention to. And so th those kind of um, times when you think you're doing nothing um, are actually really important because that's when things rise to the surface and you can have the conversation and you, you, your child then knows that you know and that you care and maybe you've got some strategies or maybe it's just that you, you, know, you give them a hug and say, you know, life's tough sometimes. So, you know, we'll always be here for you and... and help them so that they don't because what stress is and what anxiety is is it's years and years and years of overload um, that we haven't you know so I work with policemen and and war veterans and basically it's just that they've they've had experience after experience after experience which nobody's ever really talked through with them and the nature of human beings is that we have to do a lot of processing and and that means sitting close being close talking over things and letting things kind of rise to the surface. Um, sometimes we don't even know what's wrong with us until we have a chance to talk to someone and then it all comes pouring out. And so that's what I think the, the really, you know, that five, ten minutes that you might spend with your kids, which could be life-changing. And so you have to allow for that possibility. And, and create the opportunities to allow it to happen. That's right. Steve, it strikes me that some of the things that you're talking about now uh, would be characterised as positive parenting. Would that be fair to say? Yes, although I don't like those kind of um, um, fads. Um, so that very often the way that publishing world works is that you take a, a single idea and you make a really big deal of it. Um, and So you have a book and you have a course and you have a... Um, uh, you know, you sell seminars to schools and it becomes the flavor of the month and everyone's doing it. And I think um, I, I'm much more trusting of the natural process. And so my idea of, of to, to do parent education, I've, I've, I've had 130,000 people now come along to the shows that I teach or shows that I do. Um, but I never, um, I never give people recipes. Um, what I do is I tell loads and loads of stories. And some of the stories um, make people cry. It's not unusual to have people weeping in, in the theatre. Um, but then they make them laugh as well. And we hope we get a balance of laughter and tears. But when you hear a story about another family, you can take your own lesson from that and take your own point. And you'll often see, you know, husbands and wives just looking at each other in the audience with that look of, you know, kind of, you know, biting your lip kind of look. That's us, you know. We've we've got caught in that pattern too, and 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 so the um, I think what f being a family therapist gives you is a kind of respect for people that people are actually pretty amazing and they're very devoted to their kids, and if they're given even halfway some good tools, 
they'll make their own use of it. And so they won't, you know, lock onto it like some program or some, because if you, you, know, you come back and you, kids feel like they're being, um, you know, you're doing positive parenting, you know, it, it sort of doesn't wash, especially with teenagers. They, yeah. they need to know, they need to know us. Um, <laughs> and if, if we're grumpy and, you know, I mean, a really good example I heard in a, an, an English woman, uh, uh, Perry, I forget her first name, uh, Perry, she's a terrific speaker. And she said, you know, if you're at the playground and and you want to go home, it's best to say, look, um, Jennifer, I'm I'm really tired and bored now, and I'd like to go home. Um, it's much better than saying, you know, it's, we're we're almost out of time now, or we should be going. You know, it's better to speak from the heart. Um, don't be nasty, but but just they can relate to that. Um, and so be real uh, and um, kids kids think you know well they're real and so if we're real as well that helps too um, I think that as you touched on a couple of things there that I'd like to continue with in the conversation um, parents my my experience and the work that I've done is that parents generally uh, want the very best for their children and and with a few exceptions very very few exceptions uh, and I, I think that we are I believe that we're at a point where we should be honouring that role of parents a lot more. Um, and even though they may not come up with a solution or come up with a decision that in our eyes is what they should be doing, uh, they are doing the very best that they can do for their children and for their family. Um, and so I think that that honouring honouring parents of where they're at is something that we, we don't necessarily see from institutions like schools or um government departments or whoever might be involved in the in the parenting equation with a particular family exactly and i think um it's you're right it's it's um corporations um that are not understanding enough of parents need for you know we everyone should have flexible hours um that are family friendly there's no logical reason why companies and public departments can't be family friendly um, Daniel Petrie, who's a very high up corporate leader in Australia, is scathing about the um, unfriendly practices of many companies, and he's pioneering how to run companies that are that are that support dads in being dads and mums in being mums. But I have a particular issue with our government because our government currently is extremely persecuting of. Um, particularly families who are financially struggling and the, on our Facebook community we have two I have two Facebook pages and which are coming up towards a quarter of a million participants one on raising boys and one on raising girls and we've been featuring some stories from um, the um, Berry Street Foundation which is a welfare organization about the Parents Next program which is a um, basically support government support for single parents um, and basically what's happening is governments don't want you to be with your children. They have a philosophy that you should be in the workforce, um, that if everyone is working, then we wouldn't have anyone on welfare. And, but the way they go about that is by cutting back people's incomes and an awful lot of kind of persecutory companies who are con subcontracted to, to place you in work. And, and, um, and so a kind of a harassment of low-income families and I think it's really important to to, to call that out because um, it takes time to be a, a if you're a single mom or a single dad it takes time and you need to be not 
incredibly anxious about buying the groceries. And so I think there are cultures, Sweden, Finland, um, Germany, where they're good places to be a parent because the government actually matches its rhetoric with its actions. They, they give you loads of leave, loads of time, and they, they put a, a high financial value on raising mentally healthy children. It costs $400,000 a year to keep someone in prison, Jackie, in, in any country in the Western world. You know, half a million dollars a year to put someone in jail. If we spent one-tenth of that on helping young parents to, in a year to, to be there for their kids and to not be stressed over housing and food and health care, um, then we would keep people out of jail and, and we would get such a good benefit from that. And so you're right, we, we, we're a society that says we like families, but we just don't walk the walk. Um, and, and luckily, lots of people are standing up to that and, and campaigning about that. And, um, and it's, it's, you know, if you, if you hear a politician talking about families, call him out because that's not what they really do. I think that's, a, you know, even, you know, even broader than that. And I think obviously it's very, very acute for families who are where there is, it is a single parent family or where uh, there is that financial, uh, you know, financial challenges. I think, I think every, mm. every young or new family goes through financial challenges. Uh, some of us never get out of it. But anyway, but that's, that, it's always there. But I think that the, the, push to, um, the push to get women particularly back into the workforce uh, and, and have it uh, packaged as, you know, your children, you know, two, two years before school starting age is, is ideal to have children in childcare and in early learning situations and completely devaluing, you know, a parental choice or a family decision to keep their children at home longer because they want to be, they believe that's better for their children, having that devalued. I find that really disturbing, Steve, because I think that that family is, is absolutely the right place for that child to be. And parents know their kids. They know their kids better than anybody else. Why would they willingly hand that over to a, to a state um, and not have that opportunity to have that, that really important input in those early years? Yes, I, I, I really agree with you. And one of the things that we look at is, is I, I wrote a, a book about this which was published in the UK. It wasn't published in Australia because we, we were aware that the British government was, um, at the time we wrote it was the Blair government and they had that philosophy where we want everyone, you know, every mother should put their kids into childcare and go and work at the checkout of the supermarket or clean offices or something like that. And, and, and we, we, we released this book to show how inadequate um, most childcare provision really was in terms of the quality. And there was a thing that we look at, which is called um, jointed, it's got a very scientific name, I apologize, called joint attention sequences. And it's the moments where a parent and a child give each other their full attention. So in a little, a little baby sort of even, you know, lying on, um, in, you know, so lying in a beanbag or, or sitting on the floor, you know, it kind of makes a little sound to, to their mum and their mum sort of hears them make the sound and the mum says, you know, how you doing? And the baby sort of says, you know, hi mum, you know, and mum says, how are you? And, and there's a little exchange that happens where they, they share a, a beautiful minute or two. And in a, in a family setting, that would happen probably 70 or 80 times a day. 
um, where a, where a, a care a, a mother, father, grandma um, engages with their child with eye contact and with loving exchange. Um, in an institutional setting like a childcare centre, it probably happens at most three times a day. Um, because the kids are being managed in, in groups and the ratios of staff are, are not very good. Now, if you have a very expensive and very well-staffed and very stable childcare centre with, with, you know, they're not losing staff all the time where they're properly paid, um, you can get that kind of quality that, you know, where your child loves their carer and their carer knows them for years. Um, but that's almost a fantasy you know, fairy tale that kind of provision and some some people do occasionally strike that and so um, th at the very least what I would say you know some people want to be in the workforce and they have important you know important jobs or, or jobs that they love and need to do um, but it should be a choice it shouldn't be from you know that we can't afford to pay our mortgage unless we do that it should be um, because this is, you know, this is where the, my aptitude is. This is where my my heart lies. Um, and so, yes, you're right. We we should we, we should aim for a situation where everyone feels that they can stay with their kids as long as they want to. Um, and because I'm, I talked about this in um, in the Raising Boys book, we wrote about um, the fact that boys are actually much more prone to separation anxiety. And they're much slower to develop what's called subject constancy, which is this thing that mum is still there even if she goes away for an hour or goes away for a day. She still loves me. She'll still come back. That's a cognitive ability that kids develop. But boys develop it more slowly. And so we, we were saying that, um, you know, you're free to choose. And it shouldn't be a gendered thing. It could be dad who stays home equally as much. Um, but um, listen to your heart. This has always been my message. Listen to what your heart tells you. Now, um, Jackie, I'll meet people from 20, 25, 30 years ago who read that in my book, and they said, right, um, what my heart says is don't do it. Um, and it also applies to that other aspect, which is not putting boys into school too young um, because they um, often in Anglo-Saxon countries, England and Australia and America, boys start school often at four and a half or five. Uh, in advanced countries, they don't start till seven. And so we wrote about this in the Raising Boys book. And I would guess tens of thousands of people, um, as a result of reading Raising Boys, kept their kids home for another year um, or kept them in preschool or even in childcare for another year. Um, and didn't rush them into school when they weren't developmentally ready um, because parents know their own child and they could tell, you know, that this little fellow, even though the school says, you know, send him in and even if the government says this and so on, in their hearts they knew he's not ready for sit-down learning. He's still a baby. He's still, you know, still growing. Um, and so um, one of my roles, I think, because I'm a kind of a non-expert, I'll tell people the science and I'll tell people lots of examples of what other people have done but the overall effect Jackie is that it points people inwards they listen to their inner voice more and very often that voice corroborates what I'm suggesting and then they feel supported to, to, to be a little bit more countercultural in what they might choose 
Um, and if you're countercultural in a sick culture, then um, often you will make wonderful choices. And you'll, you might feel a little bit out on a limb, like, you know, you're the only one who's doing that um, in your street or among your friends. But you'll have that sense of, look, I know, what, I know my child, I know my values, and, um, and I've never heard that not to work out. You know, we now, in my talks, we meet people who were raised with my books. And, and they say, you know, my mum did this and my dad did this and, you know, and they had your book on the shelf. And, and as I, I look these people in the eye and they look pretty healthy to me and I feel like, you know, that was, that's worked out pretty well. This is the proof of the pudding. Oh, that, that's wonderful to hear, Steve. Can we talk about, has you your book come out? You, I know you wrote your, your, girls, your girls' book came out, Raising Girls, is that right? That's come out this year already. And we're grading for um, Raising Boys. Is that coming, coming soon or, or is it on the shelves already? They're both, they're both out in the, in the dr dramatically improved versions. If you're looking on the shelf, it's, it's Raising Boys in the 21st Century and raising girls in the 21st century, and so so you can tell that's the 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 edition that's that's it's still got all the good stuff in there, but it's tackles some of the challenges that were never around before um, that, that that parents are facing today. So it, so we've brought them right up to date, and also some amazing studies into with boys, for example, into the hormone stages of the um, the full-on fours and the emotional eights for example which we didn't know were not known about until about two or three years ago so a lot of fantastic science is coming out that's helping to understand what makes your boy the way he is and what makes your girl the way she is I'm, I'm particularly interested in raise in the raising boys area <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that you know I think girls you know from what I've seen in the education in the education world, that's that's substantially where I've come from, is that girls have actually been doing very well and improving for a, you know a considerable period of time, and outperforming outperforming our lads. Um, so what is it? I think we could say take two two things at this stage that we could say yes, these are things that we know from the science that we would be do we would do well to be aware of and be concentrating on with our boys to, to improve our parenting and, and give them, you know, the, the lift that they need because our boys are really suffering socially, aren't they? Yes, I think um, the first thing to say when we talk about the genders is to say that the genders overlap. They're not um, separate boxes. And it's just knowing, for instance, that you've got a boy, a baby boy, doesn't tell you anything about what he'll be like. You have to get to know your individual boy. Um, and so once we, once we accept that, that there's a lot of variation, then we can still talk about the general risk factors of being a boy and the risk factors of being a girl. As long as we allow that there will be kids who are, look more like the other kind of gender than, than the other way. Not, not saying that they're tra transgender or anything like that or, or gay necessarily, but just they vary. Um, now, an example of that is when you take the testosterone levels from cord blood, umbilical cord blood. Jackie, you know what I mean by that, where when the baby is born, the, the umbilical cord um, that joins to the placenta. If you take a little blood sample, some boys have got very high testosterone levels, even in the womb. Um, and some boys have got much less. And so there's a variation that's there from before birth. 
and continues into their life. Now, one of the things that was discovered was quite remarkable is that boys who have trouble with reading and trouble with language almost all come from the high testosterone group. And so it's almost as if um, kind of the more masculinized your chemistry is, the less affinity, and this is only speculation, we're only guessing why that correlation exists, that have less facility with, with language and words. Now, in the modern world, and this is where we come to what you can do, is we don't have a lot of call now for men who can wrestle buffaloes. That's, that's, that kind of masculinity isn't much help in, in the world we live in now. And sometimes it is. If you're in a car crash or something, it's exactly what you need. But the world needs men who are communicators and who are, can talk and who are open-hearted. And so if you have a little boy, two things you have to do. One is you have to be very chatty with him and tell him stories and read books at bedtime and, and give him lots of cuddles so that he's um, kind of brought into the human race more and is, is brought into being communicative and staying open-hearted. Um, and the other thing is that he's on a different timetable and so at, f- at four or five he's nowhere near where a girl is in language skills or in, even in holding a pencil or a pen. So the other thing is to give him more time. Um, puberty comes for girls a year and a half sooner than for boys and so boys really struggle when the girls are all kind of turning into goddesses and and the boys are you know can't talk to them properly and and you know don't have the confidence and so we have to help boys with with the whole area of relationships and that's something that mums are fantastic because a mum is kind of like a practice girlfriend for a, a boy and if she you know compliments him on his kindness and she chats to him and she explains things to him about feelings then he's going to be a boy that, that girls will relate to because he can talk and he can um, speak from the heart um, and he can still have you know have backbone and, and be trustworthy and reliable and all those things that, that we also need um, but he can be tender as well and so if we if we know that that's a risk factor um, we can mitigate that from you know right from babyhood onwards um, and we do the same thing with daughters as, as well to, to make sure that they, they're um, not stuck in some feminist kind, not feminist, sorry, but feminine kind of trap. And so they need feminism, which is to say that you don't have to stay in that kind of predefined idea of being female, that you can be strong, you can be noisy, you can be messy, you can be high tech. Um, and, and so that you're um, not caught up in the, what the culture is teaching, which is you're, you're supposed to be a pretty little decoration and a, a fashion icon and, and a sex object. And so the, there are, the minute that a child's gender is, is identified, these kind of, what you call it, like kind of um, dark fairies of socialization kind of come around and try and push them into certain modes. And, and we can work against that if we know about it in advance. That's really fascinating, Steve. Um, so how, how about some, a couple of tips to say stay sane but still be the best parent you can possibly be for your child? 
Okay, well, yes, I apologize for, I, I rant on a bit with this kind of format where you ask, you're a good questioner, uh, Jackie, but, but I, I tend to ramble, so I apologize if I've gone on a bit sort of wildly there. But, but the, um, the, the thing that um, I think always it comes back to is, um, one is, as a parent, is to take care of yourself and have um, some time and some, um, you know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like gardening. Our relationships are like a garden, and so your marriage needs watering, and your marriage needs some some sunshine and some care, um, and you need some sunshine and some care, and and so be sure to do some of the things that that feed your soul as well. Um, don't get drowned in in um, being in the family all the time. Um, in, and ha- be sure to have friends and, and people looking out for you. And I think parents, every parent should have some older person that, that's kind to them and nourishes them and notices when they're not coping as well. I wish we had some magic way to provide, you know, grandparent figures for every family. Um, and the other one, of course, with what we talked about before, is to please slow your life down. And look at what can you throw out of your schedule so that you just are not rushing to the next thing. Um, because um, t- time is, is, the, is the most precious element. There, there are countries where people are not safe and there's countries where people haven't got enough to eat. Um, but what we haven't got enough is time. And so we've got, we've got to really prioritize that and, and, and get back the, that chance to, to breathe and be happy. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Jackie, thanks for the chance. And if it was a little bit incoherent, I apologise for that and hope it made sense to people listening. It certainly has. Thank you very much. Thank you to our guest speaker. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. Want to know more about this podcast and other VPC podcasts? please visit the VPC website, vicparentscouncil.vic.edu.au and leave a review. We would also welcome you to contact us if you would like to be our guest or if you have a topic around parenting and education. Thank you to Melbourne singer Emma Sidney for her permission to use her soundtrack, Cherish. Until next time, thank you for listening.